Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Actually, we'll start at verse 13. Let me just read for you 6, 13 through 17. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's bow and have a a brief word of prayer. Father, would you tune our hearts to this truth? Would you tune our hearts even specifically towards the belt of truth? Would you illuminate our hearts and our minds that we might see the scripture, that we might be able to appropriate the scripture, that we might as a church, as a body, both corporately and individually, fasten on the the belt of truth. Minister your word this day to every heart and may your word be clear, Father, to the hearer that we may walk in obedience and know the the joy of following in you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. How does Satan operate? What are his strategies, even his tactics? And maybe the ultimate question here as we turn to Ephesians chapter 6 is, how can I defeat the enemy? How can I be victorious over him, over the evil one? What General George Patton of World World War II said during a battle in North Africa may be legend, but this is what we find in print, but it typified certainly the man. Patton's troops and ranks were engaged in a successful counterattack against the German forces under a man by the name of General Rommel. Patton is reported to have shouted right in the thick of the battle and the attack. He is reported to have said, I read your book, Rommel. I read your book. That's what he said. And that he had. In Rommel's book, Infantry Attacks, He had carefully detailed his military strategy and Patton, having read it and knowing what to expect, planned his moves accordingly. I think likewise, we have the privilege to read Satan's plan found in God's word and you can be prepared for the spiritual battle just as Patton was in World War II. What is our enemy up to? What is his strategies and his tactics? You'll note that as we glance at the text in verse 10, he gives that word finally. He's wrapping up his argument in the book. 
And we've said the last two weeks that the key word in 10 through 20 is the word stand. It's mentioned four times. In fact, the last two times, look at verse 13 where he says that you will be able to withstand, and a little negative prefix to it, in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And then verse 14, stand therefore. And it seems to be the position of the book of Ephesians. We're seated, if you will, in the heavenlies. Then in chapter 4, we move from our position to our practice, that we are to walk in a manner worthy, we're to walk in the light, we're to walk in wisdom. And then as we get to this last section in Ephesians, where he says, finally, we are to stand. We are to stand therefore. And we're to stand, obviously, in the context against the devil, against the traitor, against the evil one. Now, what Paul's going to tell us here is that the armor is available, but you must put it on. You must strap it on, if you will. The armor is given, uh, that is given, is for head-to-toe protection. It's almost as though he gives this protection to us in hand-to-hand combat against our enemy. And the armor that he gives certainly isn't for a child book story. This armor that he gives isn't for appearances. This armor is given to us so that we can defeat our enemy. Just glance down at the text again. He says in verse 11, put on, that's a command, the whole armor of God. In fact, look at verse 13. Therefore, take up, very similar word, the whole armor of God. Look at chapter 6 in verse 14. He tells us there to fasten on the belt of truth and having put on, in verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. Look at verse 16. He tells us to take up the shield of faith. And then he tells us, to take up, verse 17, the helmet of salvation, and he will tell us to take up the sword of the Spirit. So you have a command, you have a responsibility. Certainly the strength is the Lord's, the strength is his mighty strength that he provides, but you are commanded to put on the whole armor of God. Now, it's often said, and truthfully, that Paul wrote this, and how did he come up with the armor of God? Well, we know that Paul was a Roman prisoner. Ephesians is a prison epistle. He said in chapter 4, 1, I therefore, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. And so likely, he is chained to a Roman soldier. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Because it's in 620. Look at it. For which I am an ambassador in chains. So he's in a Roman prison. And we discussed that at the beginning of this uh, book of Ephesians. So he's there. He's chained. He's likely chained to a Roman soldier. And so he's looking at the Roman soldier. Uh, uh, That's probably true. But, however, Paul is drawing, I think, far greater implications of this imagery out of the book of Isaiah. 
His mind is so steeped in the scripture that he's revealing out of Isaiah, Yahweh, and specifically his Messiah, who was in Isaiah's uh, prophetic book, a divine warrior. And that divine warrior is in armor. It's God's armor. And he prepares, does the Messiah, for battle to defend his people. It says this in Isaiah 11.4, down maybe towards verse 5. It says there that righteousness, and speaking of the coming Messiah, will be his belt and and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So this imagery isn't just that he's chained, he is. But I think in Paul's mind, he's taking this argument back to the very armor of God that was God's and was given to his Messiah. In fact, in Isaiah 59 verse 17, where it's speaking of the Messiah, he put on righteousness as his breastplate, and it says the helmet of salvation on his head, he put on the garments of vengeance. So these are the armor of God, They were given to his Messiah. In fact, in Isaiah 52 and the suffering servant, it says there how beautiful, verse 7, on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. That is another piece of the armor, as we'll see in terms of the shoes. So here, no doubt he's chained to a soldier, But here, it's an exhortation to put on God's armor as weapons and be ready to stand firm against the evil one. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 10.3. Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In other words, he's equipped us in this battle that we find ourselves in the Christian life, and he's given us these weapons, and you and I are commanded to utilize that armor. Now, what Paul does in the language here in Ephesians 6 is there's three commands that he gives to be victorious over Satan. And we've looked at the first two. The first one was the command for spiritual strength. He commands us to be strong, verse 10, but it's in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's enough. Go listen if you missed that one. Number two, he says there was a command to put on the spiritual suit, I called it, in verse 11, where it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then we come this morning to the third command, It's a command to stand strong. He tells us in 13 to take up the whole armor of God that you'd be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So there's a command for strength, a command to put this suit on, and this command to stand strong. Then look at verse 14. We'll pick it up there. He says, stand firm Therefore, okay, it's another imperative verb there. 
But what's great about Paul is he doesn't just tell you the goal to stand uh, strong in this third command. He actually tells you how to reach that goal. And what he does is he details the pieces of a soldier's armor. He details six pieces of this armor that you are to put on. You are to put on first a belt, then you're to put on a breastplate, you're to thirdly put on the shoes, then you're to put on or take up the shield, then put a helmet on, and then the only offensive weapon is he, he gives a sword to stand against the evil one. But you and I know that he transforms the armor of God into spiritual truths. That's the key, is it not? The belt represents truth. The breastplate represents righteousness. The shoes you're to take on or to take up and put on are the gospel. The shield is the shield of faith. The helmet is the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, for our time today, this is just so crucial. Let's just take the first piece of the armor. The first piece of the armor, and that piece is the belt of truth. Look at the text in verse 14, and then we'll lead into communion. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth is aletheia. In other words, the idea here, Paul says, for you in the midst of this battle, is to stand, and what you need to do is fasten on this belt of truth. It's the idea in the text of girding yourself. Here in the ESV, fasten on, but girding yourself with this belt, and this belt is truth. In fact, one translation, the New English Bible says, uh, buckle on, buckle on, if you will, the belt of truth. In fact, the NIV puts it this way, having belted your waist with truth, and the KGV says, girding your loins, or to be gird about with the truth. What's he getting at here? Just let me just say what it means briefly, tactically, maybe physically. This belt of a Roman soldier in the ESV, he fastened on this belt. The first piece of the armor, he would take his belt, he would put his belt around his waist, and he would fasten it on, or literally, he would gird up his loins. So what's he referring to, to there? Well, a Roman soldier wore a tunic. This is their common garb. It's in a lot of pictures. He wore a tunic, and it was kind of, picture this, an outer garment that was made of a very large piece of material with holes cut out for the head and the arms. And if you were to see it, it would remind me of growing up in high school and college, some of you won't know what this is, about going to a toga party, okay? A toga party is you just would wear a sheet. Um, 
which seemed to me to be very foolish at that point to do that. But this Roman soldier had this large outer garment, almost like a sheet with holes in the head and the arms. And when, it was, when he was not in battle, this tunic, if you will, was loosely draped over the soldier's body. But in battle, a loose tunic could get you into trouble really quickly. So what the soldier did before battle is he took his tunic and he tucked it into his heavy leather belt. And after he tucked it in, and I should say attached to this belt was his sword, and attached to this belt was his breastplate. So it could be that Paul's giving you a real uh, importance of order here. That when you go to battle, here's the first piece. You're going to put on this belt so that you can tuck your tunic into it when you go to battle. But this belt also had the sword that would be placed into it. And it also attached to the breastplate, okay? And so then on that soldier's belt, if you can imagine, coming down the front was the best we could, I would call it like an apron, okay? And it was made of thick leather and it hung there down to that apron to protect the thighs, to protect the lower abdomen. And sometimes the belt, even in biblical language, was called the, the girdle around his waist. Now don't think about a little tiny belt. Sometimes this belt was about six inches in, in, you know, in the vertical length. It, it, was, it was thick, it was heavy. He was to strap it on. He was, in this text, to fasten it on. And that's the first thing that he would do is he would girdle that, fasten that on, and he would tuck in his tunic, getting ready to meet the enemy, okay? So as he met his enemy, he didn't want this thing flowing everywhere, he would tuck it in. He would do that for flexibility. He would do that for mobility. In fact, the soldiers, if you can just in your mind of warfare, we're not fighting enemies that were entrenched 100 to 200 yards, yards away from whom they were in battle with. They were most likely doing hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so they needed to touch, tuck in this long flowing tunic. In fact, this way he would be unencumbered. He would be unentangled, if you will. He would be ready for war. Maybe just a quick illustration for you from the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 12, when God was preparing the nation of Israel to eat the Passover meal before their quick exit from Egypt, they were called, as they were eating this Passover meal, to have their loins girded. In other words, they were making a quick exit so Moses said, listen, you need to tuck that loin in into your belt so that you can move quickly when the death angel comes and I call you out of the land of Egypt. It's interesting, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his second coming, he told the disciples in Luke 12, 35, he used this word, be dressed and ready or to be dressed in readiness. 
And what that means is to gird up your loins. In other words, his coming is coming quickly. And I would say to you even this morning, are you ready? Are you preparing? Are you dressed in readiness? Literally means in Luke chapter 12, to gird up your loins. In other words, tuck your tunic into the belt. Be ready at that point for his second coming. So no soldier would rush into battle with a loose tunic flying all over the place. You know what that would be like? That would be like a swimmer, okay, going into the pool, either, you know, going, you know, with a breaststroke or whatever he or she is doing, or a water pole player going into a pool. I brought a prop this morning. Be like going into a pool with a Carhartt jacket, okay? Now, if you're at a meet over at Kingsburg and you're to watch these, these great swimmers, these young men and young women, and you saw them putting on a Carhartt and you were sitting in the stands, you would say, wait, 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 wait. You don't need that Carhartt. In fact, they got caps on so their hair doesn't get in the way. A lot of the swimmers shave their arms, shave their legs, shave, they, they want quickness in the water. That's all Paul's point is here, is that you need to be ready. You need to be dressed for battle. You need to be ready to go, okay? In fact, do we not even today, in the midst of financial pressure, say, if you get into a a struggle, that we need to tighten our, what? Our belt, We use that phrase, or we might say, you need to buckle up because this is going to be a wild ride. But here is the believer girding up his loins, if you will, preparing for battle, tucking his tunic into his belt. Now, Paul is using the belt, we know this, for a spiritual truth. Look at it again in 14. He says there, having fastened on the belt of, he calls it the belt of truth. Now, what does that mean? That's really the important question, isn't it? What, what, what does it mean, the belt of truth? Well, there's two main ideas on this, and I think it's fair that I share this with you. Number one, some teach that the belt of truth is subjective truth. In other words, he's saying here that some would teach, gird up your loins with truth, and it's the idea of to be truthful, or gird up your loins with truthfulness. In other words, it's pinpointing it to a subjective truth that you're gonna overcome the evil one with truthfulness, or another word is sincerity, or another word is integrity, that you really need to go into this battle, and what you need to do is you need this subjective truth so that there's no hypocrisy running in your life, and you need to live out truthfulness. So the believer prepares for battle by girding up his loins with truthfulness or sincerity. They could use verses such as Psalm 51.6 where the psalmist said, Thou dost desire truth in the innermost being. And so it's subjective truth, some would interpret it that way. Sincerity of heart that you and I need to be full of integrity, that you can't have any hypocrisy in your life, and the belt is your own truthfulness. 
But the second way to interpret this, and it makes a difference in terms of application, is to understand the belt of truth and to see it as objective truth. It is the truth, not your truthfulness, but the truth is the word of God. It's an objective truth. It's the teaching of Scripture, and I believe this is the Holy Spirit's intent. Certainly, either way is appropriate from the grammar. It would be hard to say that one is right or the other because of this nuance or this position of the word, but I really believe that it's objective truth. Say, why do I believe that? Well, first of all, the armor is God's. It's not yours, right? I mean, to me, that just kind of is a deal breaker. That in describing the armor of God, the foundation piece doesn't seem to me to be your own sincerity or your own truthfulness or your own integrity. That is true. It's certainly true in Ephesians 4. But it seems odd that Paul would exhort us to put on God's armor and then turn right around and tell us that the foundation piece of this belt is our own truthfulness or integrity. You say, well, why do you believe that? Well, here's why. Because in Ephesians, look back in chapter one. I believe it's objective truth. I believe what he's telling us to do as we go into battle, you need to know the truth. You need to know the whole truth. Look at Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, he said when you heard, what did they hear? The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then it says in verse 13 that you believed in him. What they heard, even though God sovereignly called them in chapter 1 earlier, they were at a point in time what they heard was truth and that truth of Christ, that truth of God, that truth of Scripture, then therefore they believed. Look over in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 20 where he's talking about the, the ways of the old manner of life in 17 and 19, but he says to you believers that this is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, watch this, as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, the objective truth of God's word took on flesh in the person of Christ. To me, there's a real inference here that he's talking about objective truth. Certainly, you could quote it with me in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the, what? The truth and the life. He is the objective truth. He is truth in a person. He lives that out, certainly, but he is the truth. In fact, later, or even earlier in John 1, it says that Jesus came at his incarnation. And do you remember? He was full of grace and what? Truth. So Jesus is the self-disclosure of God. Jesus reveals truth. Jesus and the word of God reveal a body of doctrine about God, man, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, uh, marriage, 
all that, sanctification, holiness, there is a body of truth. It's objective. It's found in the word of God. It was bound up in the person of Christ. John the apostle put it this way, that we know the son of God has come to give us understanding. This is 1 John 5, 20. So that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. And then this magnanimous statement, he is the true God and he is eternal life. So here's this objective truth. So the belt of truth, I believe, concerns the whole truth, the objective truth of the entire Bible, the objective truth of the great doctrines of the Bible. It is seen supremely in the life of Jesus Christ, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you say, well, why is this objective truth. What do you mean I'm putting on this belt of truth? Why is it so important? Why is it first? And here's what I would say to you. Because the devil, your arch enemy, is an absolute liar. You know that. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, that you, speaking to the religious leaders, are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And it says, does Jesus in 844, he does not stand in the truth because there's absolutely no truth in him. And so he's an absolute liar. Paul is telling you to stand therefore. And the first piece of armor is this belt of truth this objective truth that you need to fasten on, buckle on, and gird up your loins, if you will, for the battle. In fact, Paul, even in 2 Thessalonians, it's used in a negative way. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, it's talking about the coming of the Antichrist, and it's the coming of the lawless one who is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love what? The truth. There's going to be false signs, wonders done and performed by the Antichrist that it says there they're perishing because they refuse to love the truth. And so as to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Certainly that is the day in which we live. So the belt of truth, beloved, is the word of God. Expressed in Christ is to be seen as the objective truth because without it, we are absolutely lost. Now, let me share this. There's a difference between truth as a whole and truth in specific portions. Some would say, no, this is the subjective truthfulness because why would he talk about the belt of objective truth 
in, in the first piece of armor, then finish at the sixth piece of armor and tell you to take up your sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So they balance it and say, I think it's subjective truth. But I look at this as different. Uh, there's a difference between the whole truth and this specific portion. Let me just say this. If you were to take the phrase, we'll look at this later, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, you have a perfect illustration of the sword of the spirit in Matthew 4, where the devil came tempting Christ in the wilderness, and our Lord responded with each temptation with this statement, it is what? Written, okay? And Christ uses in all three of those temptations the sword of the spirit. And what I mean by that is he quotes a particular section of scripture and he uses the sword as a scalpel to overcome his temptation. In other words, that's not the belt. He is coming at a specific temptation by the evil one and he picks up his sword in Ephesians 6, a Machaira sword. You say, what's a Machaira sword? Well, just like they have words for love, they have words for sword. They had a broad sword. That's not the word that he uses for the sword of the spirit. He uses the word for Machaira. It was a short dagger. In other words, he is pinpointing the very exact temptation with an exact portion of scripture. But here, when he's telling us to put on the belt... I believe it is a broad term. It's objective truth. It's objective truth as a whole. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you know this. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? Free. Free from who? Free from the devil. Free, free if you will, to salvation. In other words, free from the, the law. Free from the flesh. In other words, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So in order to be victorious over the devil, you must know the truth. Jesus said in John 17, 7, thy word is what? Truth. So I don't think he's talking about the Machaira sword that will come. He's talking about the objective nature of all of the scripture, if you will. So when Paul tells you to belt up, or to fasten on, or to gird up your loins with truth, he's telling you that the way to freedom, the way to holiness, the way to resist the devil is to fasten the belt with the whole truth of the word of God. In, in fact, let me show you where many churches are in error today. Look back just two chapters in chapter four. Do you remember where he was telling us about the apostles, prophets, then he was telling us about the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. And then he said this in verse 14, 414. So that we may no longer be children. Obviously, the, the role of the local church is to produce spiritually mature women, men and women. Spiritually mature marriages. The goal of the church is not to entertain. The goal of the church is not to be event-oriented. The goal of the church is that you would no longer, verse 14, be children. What's the characteristic of a children? Look at verse 14. Tossed to and fro. 
just all over the place by the waves, it says, and carried about by every wind of doctrine. In other words, they're blowing all over the place because the church doesn't know who they are. The church isn't even convinced who their audience is. The church has been designed and strategized to do a lot of other things than to mature you and to not have you be children. The church wants to produce mature people. He said here, but in verse 14, they're blown all over the place by, look at this in 414, human cunning, and so these are false teachers, by craftiness, and then he mentions this in deceitful schemes. And so listen, you've got to have that belt of truth on so that you and your seventh grader aren't blown all over the place. That you and your eighth grader aren't blown all over the place. That you and your high schooler aren't blown all over the place. And I'll mean this with passion, that you and your university students don't lose their faith between 18 and 20. In other words, I think here what Paul is saying is, listen, you've got to stand against this evil one. There's the command. These are all participles. Put on your belt of truth so that you're not blown all over the place. You know the whole truth. Uh, Not that we ever arrive at that, but there's a body of doctrine that we subscribe to. 1 Timothy 4.1 Paul told Timothy there that the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some, I would hope none in here, okay, would fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. Isn't that interesting? They're spirits, it's the underworld, if you will, but they're deceitful and they're doctrines of what? Demons, you may want to go to the ism and schism class. We want you to know what they teach. We want you to know what you believe. Listen, the doctrines of demons taught by cults have their origin in deceitful spirits that Paul calls calls cosmic forces in the heavenly places. And the only way you can defeat them, you know this, is by truth. By truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, truth is the first thing we put on. There is no hope, Paul says, unless you put that on first. The belt of truth is understood, Lloyd-Jones said, appropriated in such a manner that it governs the whole of my outlook in every respect, end of quote. Truth is foundational because the devil seeks to confuse you. It's just true. The devil seeks to lead you astray. The devil seeks to create uncertainty. The devil seeks to create and in you to doubt God's holy word. Satan came to Eve. You finished the sentence. Hath God really, what? Said. This is what he's whispering today. Listen, beloved, All temptation starts, all temptation starts with the idea that we have the right to evaluate what God has declared or what he has required. That's where temptation begins. It begins in the imagination and that you have the right to evaluate what God has already declared 
or what he has required. Satan did not come to Eve, beloved, and say to her, I am out to destroy you. He didn't come to Eve and say, I am out to rip your head off. He didn't say to Eve, I am in the process of deceiving you and it will kill you. No, that would be far too easily recognizable. Satan pulls up a chair and engages Eve in a theological discussion. Eve, this is what it would like. Let's discuss what God said. Did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Somewhat frightening that he's quoting the scripture to her. Satan at that moment, beloved, placed doubt in her mind by distorting God's word. The tone is this. Did God tell you you couldn't just eat everything here? Eve, is it strange that God has restricted you? And what Satan does masterfully as a serpent in craftiness is he makes God look like a killjoy. That's what he does. The implication is that there's something that God, Eve, wants to deprive you of. That's the thought. There's something, Eve, in God's character that makes him want to limit you. Eve, really what he wants to do is he wants to steal your joy. Very well, Paul is going to say to that and throughout all the scripture, put on your belt of truth. Truth needs to, beloved, it needs to fill you. It needs to hold you. It needs to direct you. It's got to occupy your mind and your heart. It needs to affect your entire life. Truth changes you, beloved, into the image of Jesus Christ. So that means, therefore, we don't compromise the truth here at Grace Church of the Valley for the sake of peace. That means we're not going to compromise the truth for the sake of tolerance, okay? The Bible is clear on the right to life. The Bible is clear on marriage between a male and female. The Bible is crystal clear on gender. There's male and there's female. And we would say, the Word of God would say, that he defines that and I really don't care what American Girl Doll says. Because they're after your children. They would love to write books that would mess up what I just said. Okay? You and I, we have our marching orders. It's the whole truth. And so the truth isn't in our culture. And the truth is not in church tradition. Okay? The truth and the authority of the word of God comes right out of the scripture. Scriptural, scripture is the final authority. And you must put the belt of God's truth on. And so I'm asking you, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe that the Bible is inspired in every part? Inerrant in all the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Do you believe that God is the true and the living God? Do you believe that he's the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and the judge? Do you know the accomplishment of the cross? Could you explain his substitution? Could you explain his redemption? Could you explain reconciliation? Could you explain propitiation? And so forth. You must have a mastery of the truth and you must be mastered by the truth. We should know what we have believed and you should know whom you have believed in. In fact, how do you pick a church? This is what I hear as a pastor sometimes, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. Well, we pick a place where our kids like it. That's not wrong if they're hearing the word of God, I understand that. But you may be visiting today. You pick a church that is handling the word of God. You pick a church where you find people like the Bereans in Acts 17, where they receive the word with great eagerness, studying the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Beloved, this is what we need. You've got to put the belt of truth on. You've got to know the book. You've got to live the book. And certainly, if you know the truth, it ought to lead you to subjective truth where you're living your life in integrity without hypocrisy, in utter sincerity because you know that truth. You say, well, okay, pastor, what does that mean? Well, I've said this before to you. I'll say it again. You need to have a five-fold grip on the word of God, okay? Five-fold, all the fingers and the thumb, five-fold grip, just this simple. You need to be in the hearing of the word of God, okay? You need to be present in the services. You're here, so I'm preaching to the choir. Are your kids here? Are your grandkids here? Are they faithfully sitting under the teaching of the word of God that is going to give us the railroad tracks? So you've got to be in the hearing of the word of God. That's not the only thing. Secondly, you need to be reading the word of God. Hear it. You need to read the word of God. You need to be systematically and daily reading the scripture. Men, are you in the book? 1824, are you in the book? High school student, junior high, there's a party tonight. Are you in the book? I, I hope so. Mamas, as hard as it is if you're up all night with babies, okay? Are you in the book? Are you hearing the word? Are you reading the word? Thirdly, are you meditating on the word? the personalizing, the application of the truth, meditating on the scripture, not just the quick flyby. Number four, you're memorizing the scripture. You're putting God's word into your heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against thee. So you're meditating on it, but you're memorizing it. And fifthly, you're studying the word of God. You're investigating the scripture. We want this for every one of you. I really want this for our elementary kids. You say, why? Because they're going after your kids as I speak. And you can't just be a, a Christian family. I get that. I understand that. 
You got to get fierce. You got to put the belt on. You need to be here to hear the word of God. You need to be at some of the classes that came up. You need to hear what I heard in the book of Judges today. You need to hear about the schisms and the isms. And by all means, I would encourage you to get your junior higher there and to get your high schooler there. And 18 to 24, all those. And Andy and Jack are starting a a new men's ministry. And we have Bible study with women and all across the board, but a five-fold grip on the word of God. I think you've heard me say that some of you in this church have a pinky grip. It might just be me to you on Sunday. And I'm glad you're here in the hearing, but you can't park your Bible on the back of your car as you get home today and then never pick it up again. You need to blow this thing, the dust off, and get in the hearing, the reading, the meditating, the memorizing, and the studying. Listen, beloved, let's do that together. Let's put on the belt of truth. Would you bow your head with me?